0: This program is made possible by members and donors. So, a huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award winning Best of Left podcast, which is the fifth in a series I started back in October of last year. I didn't bother to mention at the time that it was a series that I was beginning, uh, but it went in more or less chronological order for a while. Episode 1216 was on why Columbus Day is terrible. Episode uh, 1230 is about why Thanksgiving is terrible if you try to pretend that it's about natives and pilgrims getting along. It's still fine if you just want to hang out with your family and eat. Number 1252 was about the imperialism of westward expansion. Number 1265 started looking at the legacy of oppression experienced by native peoples, but also the resilience of those people in the face of that oppression. And now today we shall learn about the ways that native people are represented in white society and pop culture and get some insights into the profound effects both positive and negative of how people are publicly represented clips today come from counterspin let's talk native native america calling politically reactive break dances with wolves backstory
1: and on the media New poll finds nine in ten Native Americans aren't offended by Redskins' name, was the front page story in the Washington Post, May 19th, based on a survey the paper conducted. Thing number one the team's hometown paper had to say, quote, The results, immediately celebrated by team owner Daniel Snyder and denounced by prominent Native American leaders, could make it that much harder for anti-name activists to pressure Redskins officials, who are already using the poll as further justification to retain the moniker. It's naturally worth listening to a range of Native American people, but that happens so rarely in media that an instance like this merits some scrutiny. And for some, the word to describe these results would not be the one the Post chose, unambiguous. Jacqueline Keeler noted in The Nation that more than half of the poll respondents were over 50, when Native Americans have a median age of 26, or some 10 years younger than the general U.S. population. The Post says they weighted the results, but those were still the comments reflected in the piece. No respondents were under 18, and that might be justified methodologically. You need to follow certain protocols to interview minors. But it does leave a hole in the data's meaning, given that it leaves out the Native American students attending the 2,000 high schools in the U.S. that mascot Native Americans and that the White House has reported face discrimination connected to that. The Post says, quote, it's entirely appropriate for a news organization to conduct a survey to test any assertions made about the breadth and depth of offense among Native Americans. This is customary for any other public policy issue, close quote. Well, that sounds reasonable, but the paper would have to have a record of actually regularly listening to those communities to make it sound convincing.
2: I mean, so when we talk about, you know, um, uh, death by cop, most people don't realize that, that native people, native men in, in most of the age demographics have a higher percentage of death by cop than even black men. I, look, it's not a, uh, a trophy. This isn't a contest that we want to win, but the reality is, except for that 16 to 21 age group amongst black men, native, uh, uh um, native males have a higher death by cop rate than um than any other group of people and and that's that's not a widely known uh, statistic but it but it's true of course again it's a it's a percentage of our population so it's not a big number it's still a small number uh so so we don't get the headlines we when we do get the headlines we get the headlines because of some atrocious act some some heinous crime like what happened to savannah gray when uh when when she had the uh when she was murdered and had the baby cut out of her womb and this was in um uh what was it uh, it was far i think Fargo, North Dakota, I believe, but this wasn't even on a native territory. this was in a city, and in that situation there was you know, law enforcement did its did its job and 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 i guess the, there there's prosecution going on to the people who were involved, but that's only because it was in a city and because they have the resources to do it when you take um these crimes that are committed to against native women in on a native territory or are around a native territory they will never have see the resources that are that are deployed and oftentimes again there is a certain level of racism that uh, uh that comes into uh how you how accountable you, you you hold people i think about um uh um the uh, i can't even think of what town it was but there was a an incident a few years back where a bunch of uh, um grade school kids were were uh, were allowed to go to a hockey game uh, as a reward for their grades and, uh, and some white guy stands above him in the, in the luxury uh suite uh, above where these kids were dumping beer on them and, and insulting him, telling him to go back to the reservation, calling them dirty, filthy, stinking redskins as he's dumping beer on these kids. And that guy got a, got a $50 fine. I mean, he he got a slap on the wrist. It wasn't it wasn't a hate crime? I mean, it was a hate crime, but he, but that, that never entered in, into the equation. See, this is the. Again, where where the underlying racism exists, and and that's something that that I talk about on the show quite a bit is that there is a level of racism that exists towards Native people that doesn't get the same attention that some of the blatant racism you'll see against Black people or against um uh, against Muslim or or, or other mi- marginalized people because there's there's a strange relationship in that like the mascot is, is, uh, issue, for instance. There's almost like this backhanded compliment like because because they want to claim oh yeah we 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 want to use your image because we uh because we honor what that image represents no you you appropriate certain characteristics that you think are associated with that image but in doing so you are mocking our people which is a whole nother, another another uh, level of racism it, you know and again it's ironic and I've brought this up a couple of times when that whole incident in Washington DC uh uh uh, played out between Nathan Phillips and, uh, and these MAGA-hatted young boys, um, from, uh, Covington, uh, Catholic school were uh, kind of had their face off. What, uh, there was a certain level of outrage that, that yes, that this, this, this young innocent looking boy was, was sarcastically smiling and almost mocking Nathan Phillips, who was, uh, who was, who was playing his hand drum for whatever reason. And then, much of that crowd of young men, young boys, started doing the, the tomahawk chop, and 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 again, it was real easy for people who, you know, especially in the age of um, of trying to hold Trump and, and Trump followers accountable, at least from people on the left, it was real easy for people on the left just to condemn this tomahawk chop, you know, being uh, being displayed in the face of a native person playing a hand drum. But that same thing happens in a football stadium on every Sunday. Uh, or uh, in at a college football stadium like uh like like Florida State or in a baseball uh park like uh where the Atlanta Braves play or the or the, or, the, or Cleveland plays the, i mean in, in fact Atlanta is where is is considered the home of the Tomahawk Chop so when 30,000 people are doing it in a stadium everybody can look the other way but when a bunch of white boys wearing maga hats does it in the face of uh of of, of a native elder playing a hand drum there's, there seems to be, you know, a different level of, um, of scrutiny applied to that. I mean, where the hell do you think that these young boys learn this stuff from? They, they've seen, they didn't, they don't teach tom, the, the tomahawk chop in grade school. They see, they see it play out in professional sports. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm talking about when I talk about this kind of, uh, um, there's a different level and a, and a different consideration, uh, tied to the racism that Native people experience, and if you are a Native person and you've lived on a Native territory, you know what it's like. And and the crazy part is, usually the immediate areas around our territories, we have decent relationships with uh, with the non-Native people. I mean, they're, they're our neighbors, and oftentimes they're our friends. We go to schools with. But then when you start looking the, at the institutions, whether it's the courts, whether it's uh, the law enforcement, or you know sometimes whether it's the uh, those who develop curricula at uh, at these schools, that's where the racism starts coming in. Or you'll see, you know, uh, you'll see what was a latent um, feeling of racism percolate to the top when uh, when it slips out. Uh, you know, we we had a, um, um, uh, an issue and we've seen this play out in many territories uh, across the United States where native um, grads. And again, we didn't exactly have the highest graduation rates. But when our kids graduate from high school, several of them and my son included wanted to wear an eagle feather from his uh, from his cap. And it was prohibited. We, there, there were schools all over the United States that were saying, "No, no, you can't be, you can't be done." I mean, some Native people did it anyway. My, my son was one of them. But we, we had people looking at that and saying, "Well, you know, if we let an eagle feather, then we might have to let a, you know, a swastika or a uh, or Wiccan symbols." I mean, this is the kind of um disconnect that people could have by having by allowing a, a, a people to to take pride in who they are, a distinct people taking pride in who they are by, uh, by, by having enough tolerance to say, you know what? That's a really respectful thing. Yeah. I have no problem with it with a native person wearing a, an Eagle feather from their cap. Instead, the, the immediate reaction is to cast it into something more negative, like, like again, uh, Nazi symbols or, you know, or, or, or whatever white supremacy symbols. See, I mean, I mean, nobody had a problem with somebody wearing a big cross at, uh, at graduation so they could they could adorn themselves with things that were quote-unquote established religion but let somebody wear an eagle feather and all of a sudden it was looked that's i'm sorry folks that's racism and 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 this is so when you when you take you know a people that that are, are experiencing this level of racism and racism that can be pervasive in areas that you don't even know to look and then you uh double that up with again with with the fact that that it's a male dominant culture and that women in general are um have have yet to reach a level of um of equality with men in the united states certainly when you take uh you know again people who are oppressed by uh, by by racist um uh philosophies and then you add the female gender to it or or worse yet in many ways somebody who uh, perhaps is not gender compliant and all of a sudden you can you can open up a can of worms that could uh that uh or, or levels of oppression and persecution that most people would never tolerate anyplace else but but native people experience and that's why this missing and murdered indigenous women thing is such a big deal
3: Joe, um, in the intro, I sort of alluded to um, uh, bad examples of uh, museums uh, treating Native people poorly. Um, Can you have maybe one of the worst examples of a mainstream museum exhibiting Native peoples or Native stories incorrectly?
4: I'm sorry, the phone line was funny. No, I I heard you. Um, (laughs) Oh, boy.
3: You could say, as instead of calling someone out specifically, you could give an example of it instead of saying their names, if you didn't want to hurt I, I, anyone's feelings.
4: No, I I, 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 I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. <clears throat> I think a troublesome exhibition is one that is organized without significant native input, with guidance, without native guidance, um, and without consultation slash partnership with Native people and communities so they have input and um, certainly a strong say in how their cultures are represented and also for that case also what objects are represented. And I think over the past several years, the tide has been turning where, where museums, not all of them, but several museums are starting to step up to the plate where they're starting to change the methodology of how they're organizing exhibitions and projects.
3: Do you think there's a point where in uh you could sort of pinpoint when when the tides were really starting to turn when um enough native voices were speaking out and and saying, you know, this has got to change?
4: I don't think we've reached that point yet where um where museums have really called to um listen to a lot of Native, Native folks yet. There are some examples recently. There was an example at the uh, Art Institute in Chicago where they organized an exhibition and they didn't necessarily um, reach out to Native communities as they should. I think, and I know this may sound silly. I mentioned this to you earlier. We're in a, we're in a different world now over this past couple of years. The movie Black Panther, if you recall that museum scene, it really, I think, made people think about particularly people of color, where do these objects come from? How are they being displayed? I mean, those of us in the museum field, and many Native people have been aware of it, but I think for the general public, as well as people of color who maybe weren't aware of it, I think that scene really had a a strong impact. And over social media, you can certainly start to see more and more people are paying attention. And, And I hope, over the next several years, museums with Native collections and Native exhibits was certainly um, starting to include, include more native voices.
3: Yeah, I think you you called it the post Black Panther. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did you coin that <laughs> phrase or
4: Museum World? No, a friend of mine, actually a friend of mine, Ben Gessner, who was a curator here, came up with that, and I about fell off my chair. I thought it was so perfect. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Kathleen, what do you think about um, you know? sort of reconciling this this past that, that the museum world, and I use air quotes there, um, has with how, you know, they've treated us uh, across time and, and then putting ourselves actually
5: inside these institutions and trying to change them. Well, I think I have a little bit more of an optimistic viewpoint on that because I feel like in my own career, I've seen so much change. You know, in the early 90s, there was a lot of talk about the threat of repatriation. Um, you know, being seen as a threat to museums, like, oh, you know, our shelves are going to be emptied, everything is going to go back. Um, but I think what's really happened is uh, legislation like NAGPRA, which is Native American Graves and Repatriation Act. Um, behind repatriation, um, I think what the result of that has been has been forcing a dialogue between Native people and the institutions that hold their work. And even though, um, you know, we have the letter of the law, which has certain, you know, procedures that have to go through and notifications and inventories and different things, um, the spirit of the law is really about facilitating that dialogue and making Native people active partners with these institutions that care for their work. And what we've seen at NMAI, we, we definitely have, have returned items and there are ongoing um, cases right you know, right now. We have a whole department that deals with this. But what's been a tremendous benefit to us is all those delegations, those different communities coming in and sitting with the people Who care on a day-to-day basis for their collections, the, the collections handlers, collections managers, the conservators, and they are very eager to hear more information about these objects, what the best way to care for them is, what their history is, and how that impacts how they're stored. That then, you know, ripples out into our curatorial department and how the work is exhibited, we get to know these people in the community. They become contacts for us. They become collaborators on projects. And, you know, it's I, I think that that is what has been building for the last, you know, 20, 25 years. And I, I see that starting to happen in other museums. It's not just the National Museum of the American Indian anymore. Um, certainly, we have a long ways to go. I mean, you know, all the problems aren't solved. It's an ongoing process. But more and more native people are becoming staff members at different institutions, and I think that that diversity in the staff contributes to more sensitivity about these objects and less egregious errors and that's why we need native people to go more native people to go into the profession.
3: What about you heather uh, are will the uh, is the American Indian Cultural Center and Museum going to um, have a path that is involving community members and consultation with the tribes and things like that?
6: Well, I don't think we would accurately call ourselves that name if we didn't. Right. So (laughs) thank you for the question. Um, We are engaged currently in tribal consultations with the tribal communities here in Oklahoma. We've prepared a curatorial plan and done research in order to support that, but we're also engaging in a conversation with the tribes so that they can have both um, an oversight to the accuracy of the information and how they're being represented in our um, galleries. And while we're not featuring any tribe over any other, as we speak to the collective story of the tribes here, that we are um, engaging them in that in that conversation and in that process and, and confirming with them as we move through these research uh, processes, you know, these are building long-term relationships that have an immediate need, but... Over time, we're hoping that we can not only have their support, but figure out how our institution might support them. Um, particularly, I see that being necessary for um, the loan that we're taking from the National Museum of the American Indian and facilitating research on those objects and helping the tribal community members. Some of these things, we're, we're doing a major um, installation um, is one of our inaugural exhibits with a loan from NMAI. And many of these things have not been back to Oklahoma And so, reuniting them with our community members, at least through our facility, is going to, I think, create the opportunity for a conversation that um, is necessary and potentially might help other institutions. Um, We're unique in that we're not a state or tribal museum, and I think it's really important that while... um, those institutions that um, Joe and Kathleen are representing um, continue on the path they are working with the tribal communities, I think there's a real need for institutions broadly, um, even as independent institutions, to take up the call and recognize that there is a need not only for the curators and museum educators that um, Joe mentioned, but also collection managers. How do you manage taking care of objects that have cultural history with them and knowledge embedded in them? And Um, represent certain philosophical approaches. I will also add to that list of potential jobs is that I see a real opportunity for um, exhibit designers to emerge that can use our Native philosophies um, in just conceptualizing the aesthetics of how a gallery is approached and and presented and conceived um, in concert with curators um, who might be working with primarily Native collections, but I really see the value of bringing our Native philosophies into working with other um, collections. When I worked at the University of Oklahoma, I managed the Asian collection, the African collection, and um, really I was the curator of the Native American and non-Western arts. And so everything that was brown, um, brown people, like that was the responsibility I had. And when I had conversations with um, people who were from the Persian culture or people who were from, you know, one of the Ghanaian, like from Ghana or the places in Africa, those metacultures that they have there, there is a correlation that we all have a shared experience um, historically under oppression, um, the expansion of colonialism, and trying to find a way to give voice to our unique cultural identities I think curators can do that, but I think there are other roles in the museum that also are important to doing that, Um, and there's a lot of potential there.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by MOVA Globes, definitely the most unique globes I've ever seen. Through the use of science that seems like magic, they stand on a small pedestal, and without power cords or batteries, just silently spin. If you can believe it, they're powered by ambient light, internal magnets, and the Earth's magnetic field. So they're really a marvel to watch in action. But of course, that's also because they're beautifully designed. The first thing you're going to think of is world maps. They certainly have plenty of those. We got the antique map projection from 1790 to give us a gift... I appreciate it more for the historic value and beauty than for its representation of blossoming colonialism, uh, which is why my second choice would have been the apolitical map showing just the satellite view of Earth with cloud cover, the world as it really is without all the lines we've drawn on it to fight over. But they go much further than that. MOVA has a whole series of space globes depicting all of the planets, plus Pluto, and even some moons and an asteroid. But it doesn't stop there, they also have famous works of art, like Van Gogh's and Monet's turned into spinning spheres. So if you know someone, maybe even yourself, who would appreciate a truly unique and beautiful, practically magical globe, then check out MOVA Globes, that's M-O-V-A Globes dot com slash best, and use the coupon code BEST to receive 10% off your order. That's M-O-V-A Globes dot com slash best, and coupon code BEST for 10% off.
7: In the spirit of what this podcast is about, you know, so uh, first of all, I want to thank Madeline Ryder. She's the one who tweeted, "Oh dang, Harikonda Bolo got to the end of this week's politically reactive spirit animal ain't cool." hashtag Native Appropriation. So, in the spirit of what we talk about in the show all the time, you know, sometimes we get called out by listeners and we don't agree. Sometimes we get called out by listeners and we understand. Which is this is one of that one of those times. So.
8: So we decided uh, to call a friend of mine, Adrienne Keene, who is not only a friend of mine, but is also the assistant professor of American Studies and Ethnic Studies at Brown University. Her research areas include college access, transition, and persistence for American Indian, Alaska, Native, and Native Hawaiian students. She also has an amazing website called Native Appropriations at nativeappropriations.com. She examines representations of Native peoples and popular culture and Native cultural appropriation and fashion and design. It's a wonderful website you should go to. Completely, I think, qualified to talk to about this and to call us out and tell us what we should do differently. So, so, uh here's my buddy uh Adrian Keene, doctor Adrian Keene hey, Adrian. It's Harry
9: hi, Harry. um
8: so uh Kamau and
7: I, Kamau's on the phone too. yes, I'm here. Hi, nice to <laughs> hi, sort of meet you, so we kind of goofed. A little bit last week on the podcast. <laughs> that, that doesn't sound good. You're starting in a bad place. There were two mistakes were made. Uh, Harry, I'll let you take it from here.
8: Two mistakes were made. Uh, <laughs> I didn't realize spirit animal wasn't a phrase uh, we shouldn't use and uh that was one thing and kamau knew it wasn't but didn't say anything so uh you know we, we didn't do
7: we didn't do good we didn't do good we we basically did the two things allies can screw up at you not knowing and just sort of wading into something inappropriately or then knowing but being too cowardly to say anything because they didn't want to interrupt <laughs> the conversation so uh yeah that is well, correct I appreciate
9: so, you having me on to uh, talk about it then
7: Well then, could you
8: tell us, uh, first of all, what is a spirit animal? And secondly, why shouldn't non-natives use it? Use that phrase.
9: Um, Okay, so first of all, I'm going to give a huge disclaimer in that I am not Anishinaabe. So I'm a Cherokee person. Um, And it's almost like if a French person were to be describing a German tradition. So with that, (laughs) I actually...
7: (laughs) So so this is the third thing we've done wrong. We've actually called an inappropriate person because we assumed all, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy.
9: It's okay, uh, because I think that there... I I talk a lot about this idea of refusal in um, specifically in talking about native stuff. So I think that it's perfectly fine for everyone to not get to know exactly where the tradition comes from and what it is and still realize that it's important and not something that we should be trivializing through uh, using it in this kind of flippant way, if that makes sense. So I think like broad strokes, it's something that comes from traditions of Anishinaabe people, uh, Ojibwe people, kind of um, Great Lakes sort of region area. But the term spirit animal actually comes from white anthropologists. So this wasn't something that came from within Native communities. It was a term that they used to describe a tradition that had existed since time immemorial in these communities. So already, it's kind of an outsider term for something that Um, still has deep roots within communities. So that's the first part. And then the second part is sometimes people cry cultural appropriation with this. And I, this week, I don't know if you've been following, there's been all this stuff with like the appropriation prize in Canada. So if you don't know what that is, I would look up the hashtag appropriation prize on Twitter. So it's been a hot mess. And so I don't even think we need to describe it in terms of appropriation, just in that it pulls on really tired uh, tired stereotypes of Native people. So it's this whole idea that like Native folks are mystical and tied to nature, and the whole like Pocahontas with her raccoon and and hummingbird and Grandma Willow or whatever her name is kind of idea. So it's the total Hollywood Indian sort of stereotype. My kind of Indian though, <laughs> not not Hollywood
7: Indian. Um,
9: <laughs> yeah. And so. Yeah, I think it's just like when we use it in this way, I mean, people online say things like whiskey is my spirit animal or like just these very disrespectful things when you think about it as something that actually still has really deep spiritual roots in Native communities. So it kind of devalues it, it cheapens it when we use it in that way and takes away from the, the actual spiritual power of the thing.
8: I mean you have an incredible website native appropriations dot com uh and you cover a lot of this stuff, but can you give us a few more examples of everyday things uh that uh maybe are part of the English language now that are completely disrespectful or appropriation things that maybe we un like we don't even consciously know we're doing are there other phrases or things that we do?
9: Oh my God, I have a whole list um so okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when folks call a meeting a powwow um that's not okay because uh, the powwow is an actual thing um an actual like community gathering uh that we still do uh the phrase low man on the totem pole oh. uh, totem poles from the communities that make them again that's uh, another community not mine but um they tell stories, so there's not really, like, a hierarchy on the pole, and then the person, the, like, figure at the bottom is actually holding up the most weight, so that's a more, that's, like, an important position, not, like, a trivial one. Um, when people say circle the wagons," I think they're drawing upon really problematic Hollywood stereotypes of, like, pulling together the the covered wagons to keep out the, the Indian raids at night. Oh, jeez. Um, how many? Oh, I feel like there's so many more. Okay. Circle uh, wagons, women Lillian, the Hole. Oh, off the reservation. Uh, politicians are fond of saying that. Uh, for someone who has, like, uh, like gone out of bounds, kind of crossed the line, saying they've gone off the reservation. Clearly, hopefully, I don't need to explain why that is super offensive. Nope. Um, yeah, so uh
7: uh i think the thing that that certainly the thing that i run into with this and this is what happened to me somebody years ago called me out for spirit animal and i was like happy to go okay and then i was like well what do i say when i want to say something makes it feels like it's protecting me like i suddenly got into this place and somebody said patronus and i was like okay great i'm not worried about offending harry potter fans so that was the word i used but then i do think there's a weird thing about like complaining about not getting to use a word like i feel like it's so like i felt like even when i look back on that moment i'm like just just be creative invent your own thing right. like why are you if i can't use your word can i use something else you know so i feel like that's like it's sort of putting it back on the person to to uh give you something else it's like very childish i I look right. back and think that way
6: Aloha.
10: Aloha. Aloha. I own that. Do you? You owe me money when you say that. Whenever (laughs) I decide to say that. Whenever you say that, I need some money. I need to get paid. Yep. Yep. It's that's how it works, right? (laughs) No. That's not how it works. Mm
11: I don't know. My bros, my bro's a lawyer, you so you, you can't really
12: You can't own it. You can't own Aloha. You can't buy Aloha. It's not for sale.
11: But but somebody's trying to I mean there's what, What's going on, Wesley? Okay. We're having problems right now with that um
12: trademark Aloha Poke Company.
11: Aloha Poke Company in Chicago um who sent a cease and desist letter, letter out to other uh, local Hawaiian food joints that dis, that tried to use Aloha and Just local. Uh, well, as far as I know, yes, because those were the ones that were encroaching on this business and encroaching us I think the trademark is um only in the state of Oklahoma. no he's it, sa- he's, he actually oh, he God.
12: sent he sent a letter to alaska
11: oh my goodness so yeah, this is this alaska. is wilder than i thought right um, this man is trying to uh, trademark Aloha. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's the Aloha Poke Company. Um, there's protesters that have been outside uh, for the past couple of weeks um, trying to deter people from going into that business, trying to um, stop people from going in, not stop people, but at least let them know what's going on um, and trying to get this owner to back down from his uh, demand to in, to remove Aloha and Aloha Pokey from any other company.
12: Right.
10: And, and so uh, what's the problem with that?
12: Because he wants to own it, and so he wants to. What's it? He wants to own aloha, I and he own wants stuff. to own yeah. hoki. He wants to own the word where people, indigenous Hawaiian people, cannot use aloha.
10: Okay, it they will really use aloha. He, just to be clear, it's not indigenous. He, he wants any nobody to use. He the doesn't
12: word. want anybody to use it.
10: But which is includes indigenous hawaiian people yes. who kind of started aloha and poke that's right kind of just kind of. Yeah. Yeah. They, they
12: just yeah yeah so that's <laughs> it's part of the, it's part of our culture it's I, who we are you understood know? i just yeah. want to be clear right
10: that so this is against everybody though that i don't want anybody to be able to use this aloha. trade name right it's it's specifically because it's a trademark it's yeah. a that's, trademark th- so that's with trade names like you can use it you can say it right you can, but you can't I can say it right now and i'm not gonna i be, mean but you you gotta can
11: pay we me. air this episode <laughs> keith can we air this episode no you gotta pay me with this i would
10: appreciate it if you gave <laughs> you titled this episode aloha aloha pokey and then you gotta pay me <laughs> yeah Afterward, but so it's in relationship to trade names from my understanding yeah. that he he wants people to be able to be precluded from using this in that is right. that correct?
12: Anybody who has Aloha or Poke in their name for their business, he wants them to cease and desist. Mm.
10: That's okay. wild. And, and every place. Every place. Including Hawaii. Where Including Hawaii. These things purportedly started. Right. This is outrageous. Okay. Right. And and so um, what's the current, is there any current, uh, legal stance against this or, or what's the, the organization that's going against it? Is it just people standing outside or, or, or how are they conducting themselves in trying to, uh, uh, cure so far, this injustice? The,
11: the OHA CEO who we talked about earlier, um, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs said that it's, um, it's, the most reprehensible form of cultural appropriation. Okay. Um, which is fair to say, I think there's. Um,
10: okay. Well, but just get the news real quick.
11: Yeah. Oh uh, no. I mean, that's what they're saying. Okay. Um, um, I don't know what kind of legal challenge that really can come against this. Um, the law firm that is sending out the deceased, the cease and desist letters, the cease and desist <laughs> letters are, um, is Olson and uh, superior, superior limited. Um, and the, the owner so far is saying he's, he's, happy with their freedom of speech and they have a peaceful right to protest, but they're not backing down is what they're saying. Um What's the next step? Is there, and, 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 and one of the reasons that I, and we brought this up specifically is because um your work that you do bridging those gaps mm-hmm. and trying to meld people's together. And that includes when you, whenever you, you meld people together, you start melding cultures together, you start melding things together. Right. And, and right. Hawaii has historically been a place of, um, cultural appropriation plunder, um, <laughs> I will say, um, you know, because, and I don't that's a, know. That's a good term for it. Yeah. There's, there's a large distance between the mainland and the islands. And I feel like, you know, there's not many Hawaiians that have say so enough out here to really put a stop to that or try to educate folks on that. Um, but we see it. We see it everywhere. This is probably the last straw or, you know, the the, the straw that breaks the camel's back or tries to. Um, and one of the other um, organizations against this, I can't read it. So I'm going to hand it off. Um, this right here. Hold on. Uh-oh. Aloha. Takamine. Uh, oh,
12: yeah, yes. Vicky Holt Takamine. Yeah, she's actually the aunt of a really good friend of mine.
11: Oh, okay. It's of a small the island, I suppose. Ilio Okalani
12: <laughs> Coalition.
11: Yeah. Can you read that in white?
12: Ilio Okalani Coalition. coalition.
11: Yeah. So that's one, another one of the organizations battling against the uh, Aloha Poki okay. owner. Um, Do you think I, I have a
10: question about this? So based upon what Wesley said mm-hmm. that it is uh, cultural appropriation plunder. And I think that I think that's an overused term right now, not plunder, but appropriation. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes there's a, a fine line between appreciation and, yeah, and appropriation, right. but also commercialization. Right. Because I think the argument is that so much of when you go to Hawaii. You go to a uh, uh, luau, right? Right. And people, I think it's reasonable because we live in a commercial society. We live in a a capitalist society. People see that and they see everybody. Oh, this is all for sale. This part of the experience is love boat. And they say, oh, the culture itself, not just the symbols of the culture, but the culture itself with those symbols is likewise for sale. And so it becomes something that I believe people believe that they can just purchase. They could just get. And it's part of the experience. And that's for everybody. Sort of like different forms of music. Well, we can't say that. It's hard to say that somebody is culturally appropriating hip hop, for example. Right? Why? Because their intent was to commercialize it, was to commodify right. it. Right. They wanted to sell it. And so... Is that really appropriating when somebody says, "Okay, I'm going to take that. That's for me. And so I think that would be one of the are you familiar with that argument? And and what do you think about that idea? Am I stupid? Am I way off? No,
12: no, no. I don't think you're I don't think you're off at all. And, you know, it's like my ideas may differ from people in Hawaii. You know, I mean, I. Oh, you know, we're gonna, right?
11: ready for the letters to come in right now. <laughs> yeah.
12: Right. It's like a, it may it may differ. But you're right. When you go to Hawaii and you go to those luau's, we sell our culture. Mm-hmm. We sell it. Yeah. Take this lay with you. Take all of this stuff. Come learn how to dance to hula. Yeah. But we never ever in that moment, we don't actually say why is hula so important we just have people come up and it's welcoming it's welcoming you know especially for the white people they're like oh i learned the hula and i bought this grass skirt
10: yeah like white people can say they know how to dance
12: right exactly that's a big deal exactly (laughs) exactly so is it really appropriation if they felt that it was something that we were sharing with them yeah we were sharing the aloha with the aloha poke company I, you know, if they're not going to back down, they did everything that they had to do. I mean, they right. they they the,
10: the legality. Exactly. There, the right. legality
12: is there. I believe that maybe if they learned what aloha really meant and why and actually bring somebody on board that is from Hawaii, so then that way. It's not appropriated, but they, you know, it's like appreciated somehow. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it's, it gets so convoluted and mixed up on appropriation and appreciation. I used to think that everybody with a Hawaiian sticker on their car was from Hawaii, mm. you know, until my husband pointed out that, uh, they just went to Hawaii and they appreciated it and then they stuck it and on their car and they it. brought it back mm-hmm. with them and everything like that. What I do think is that if anybody is going to use something from another culture, that they should actually probably talk to somebody else. Consult someone else on exactly what does it mean, and am I using this properly? Because aloha is something that you share, you give. You can't, I feel you can't buy it, but this guy did.
11: Yeah. This in the, guy, in did, this country, that's an he available option.
12: Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so if people in Hawaii are going to be mad and they're going to protest, I'd like to know what exactly are they protesting? Are they protesting about the fact that this guy's using aloha or are they protesting about the fact that he's using aloha in not in, in an inappropriate way? That doesn't mean what. It really means.
11: Or are they protesting just because now they can't use it for their business? Or
12: they can oh. use it for their business, exactly. You
11: know, they, they, there's a pokey pokey in my neighborhood right now that they might have to uh, reconsider their name.
13: Right. And uh
11: you know, there's L and L barbecue as well. I mean, there's you know, obviously there uh, yeah. uh, some differences there, but um I, I think it's a very interesting conversation when you talk about you know what what we as a people decide to sell for ourselves and then what happens when somebody decides to adopt that same practice that isn't within that circle you know we see it with native folks um, and now we got white folks and with dream catchers in the rearview mirrors and we're angry about it and we're like why are you, you ain't even why you got that you don't even know what the significance of that is but we'll be quick and easy to sell it at a powwow to to, um, to Patrick and Renee so it's like <laughs>
10: to Hunter to Hunter to
11: Hunter <laughs> yes. um, and and, 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 uh, and Carla right. so I don't know but but uh, but it's so those those are real conversations because when we do meld cultures, when we do bring about you know um, a, a coalition of sorts between our people when we try to communicate with other folks from different backgrounds, different pasts, when we try to code switch, all that comes together and and it it really it lends itself to um, to the giving away of that and so I mean are people in the wrong are they not um, but it's it's just an interesting concept to me and i really I really enjoy discussing it.
13: Asked you to play Indian, what's the first thing you would do? That's what anthropology professor Barbara Meek asks her undergrads at the beginning of the semester. Their responses might sound familiar.
14: You know, you, you get the obvious um, responses of the how white man and the raising of your hand and the dropping of your voice. Meek's students
13: are reenacting what they've seen and heard in movies and on TV. And Meek is super curious about what they hear when pop culture Indians speak.
14: One of my, my overall interests in, in all of this is trying to understand the kind of social work that that language does, especially when we're not paying attention to it. And so part of my work is figuring out what exactly is it that marks that speech as Indian-like.
13: Meek calls Indian-like speech Hollywood Indian English— It has different grammatical rules and features, but no basis in any actual Native American practice or speech pattern. It's totally made up. Other pop culture stereotypes index different images. Hollywood has never been shy about portraying Greeks as crazy or Mexicans as lazy. But the image that's crafted by Hollywood Indian English is the image of the disappearing Indian. Here's how it works. Rule number one, it has to sound foreign. We hear that in the how greeting, like this one from the chief in Disney's
9: 1953
2: Peter
14: Pan. Okay, so the immediate interpretation is that this is someone who is from somewhere else.
13: Along with the how, Hollywood engines also invent words, ditch verb tenses, and say me instead of I to refer to themselves, all in order to sound more foreign. Like in this Bugs Bunny episode from 1960.
7: Boss! Boss! am you go, boss? Oh boy, me wouldn't like to be me tonight.
14: So in that case, you hear the use of um, which is really pervasive across linguistic performances. And it's not really derived from any actual linguistic practice in real life.
13: Rule number two is... Hollywood-Engine English has to be slow and plodding in comparison to the more fluent speech of the other characters. Take this clip from a 1988 episode of MacGyver.
10: Hello. My name
7: is Standing Wolf. Bitter Flats is a place of power. If wires go up, they will harm the spirits of the mountain. Look, Standing Wolf, I respect your beliefs.
14: In contrast to the other characters who are speaking quickly and more fluently and... The, the American Indian characters are, are portrayed as having more difficulty in expressing themselves. Rule number three.
13: Hollywood Indian English must be sprinkled with references to nature. Here's an Indian in an episode of Quantum Leap from 1990.
4: My brother the hawk.
7: All its life, it flies where it wants.
13: Or again, the chief from Peter Pan.
7: For many moons, red man fight pale face lost boys. Sometime
14: you. So another one here is the "for many moons," right? Because American Indians characters, or at least in the imagination, right, count time using celestial bodies rather than clocks or watches or something. And again, it it positions the American Indian character in a less civilized, right, more primitive slot.
13: And finally, rule number four. The truest Hollywood engine is a stoic one who is all but silent. Either a narrator or other character can speak for them, as is the case in many John Wayne movies, or they can mutter monosyllabically like Shep Proudfoot in Fargo, which came out in 1996.
6: So do you remember getting a call Wednesday night? Nope. You do reside there at 1425 Fremont Terrace? Yep. Anyone else residing there? No. Well, Mr. Proudfoot,
5: this call came in past three.:
13: in the morning. Lest you think that Hollywood Indian English is part of a vanishing era, here's a clip from Parks and Rec, a show that's still on the air at the time of this broadcast. In the scene, the character Ken Hotate, tribal elder of the Wamapoke Indians, is performing a ritual to lift a fake Indian curse from the town, a curse that he fake threatened to put there. What <laughs> At this point, we get subtitles that read, I am not saying anything. No one can understand me anyway. In case you didn't catch that, it was a slow and low dooby-dooby-doo. Okay, so this isn't Hollywood-Engine English. It's Hollywood-Engine gibberish. We can laugh along with Ken as he pulls one over on the citizens of Pawnee. But... I think that Ken Hotate is an Indian character that proves the rule. Real Indian practice remains hidden behind an imaginary style of speaking that has nothing to do with actual Native American languages. Because when he's not trying to fake a real Indian language, you can hear the low and disfluent Hollywood Indian influence in that character's English.
0: There are two things I know about white people. They love Matchbox 20, and they are terrified of curses.
13: You'd think we would have come a long way from the how of the Indian chief in Peter Pan in 1953. But Hollywood Injun English is not a vanishing practice.
15: What many of us know about the first people here amounts mostly to stories of loss, like the Trail of Tears and the Massacre at Wounded Knee. David Troyer, an Ojibwe professor of literature at the University of Southern California, offers a re-examination of Indian life in his forthcoming book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present. He begins his counter-narrative with the confusion that catalyzed the horror in Wounded Knee, South Dakota, in 1890. Troyer says frontier soldiers spilled a flood of innocent blood because they were spooked by the ghost dance, a religion based on the vision of a Paiute spiritual leader named Wovoka. It was a pretty
16: vanilla vision. He basically said we have to get along with white people, you have to work hard, you can't cheat or steal or drink. If we do all these things, well then we will be reunited with our loved ones and our ancestors in the afterworld. It was almost Protestant in its in its insistence on a kind of work ethic. As it spread and grew and other tribes interpreted it differently, some people thought if they did the dances in the right way and wore the right shirts and did all the right things, that They would be among the chosen and the saved and everyone else would be wiped away in a a massive flood or or some kind of catastrophe.
15: Meaning all the white people. Meaning all the white people and all the Native
16: people who didn't do this stuff. So the Ghost Dance was a religion that was growing around the Pine Ridge Agency. And there was a troop buildup out of fear that this religion would lead once again to open armed conflict with the government. It was never going to go there, but the increased presence of troops put people on edge. Around the same time, Sitting Bull was murdered when they tried to apprehend him. That scared most of the native folk at Pine Ridge, and so everyone was kind of running for cover. Uh, Contingent of the reconstituted 7th Cavalry stopped Spotted Elk's band, Sioux as well as some other allied bands, and surrounded them. The next day, they moved to disarm them. It's not really known what caused the shooting in the first place, but Mm -hmm. almost immediately, the government opened fire with Hotchkiss cannons on largely unarmed men, women, and children.
15: The descriptions of the massacre are horrifying. You quoted a reporter from the Deadwood South Dakota Times who wrote, Why should we spare even a semblance of an Indian? And then you have L. Frank Baum author of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, writing for the South Dakota Saturday Pioneer. He said, having wronged them for centuries, we had better in order to protect our civilization, follow it up with one more wrong and wipe these untamed and untamable creatures from the face of the earth.
16: By virtue of, of being wronged, we're now a threat. Almost immediately after the massacre, it came to contain and symbolize all of the preceding 400 years of interactions between colonists and indigenous people in the New World. This was basically the end, and it stood in for everything that had come before.
15: Now, what most Americans know about the massacre, they learned from Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee and the HBO film adaptation in 2007. Tell me about the importance of this book.
16: Mo, Yeah, Dee Brown's 1970 classic, Bury My Heart at Ni, is the most widely read book about American Indian history ever. Published in 17 languages, never out of print. It sold over 4 million copies. I read that book when I was in college. I was thrilled to be introduced to a book about me. And in the very first pages of the book, he says something like, this book is about the Indians' Plains Wars from 1850 to 1890. I start at the beginning of the wars and I end at the massacre at Wounded Knee, where the culture and civilization of the American Indian was finally destroyed. If you ever happen to travel through a modern Indian reservation and you notice the poverty and the hopelessness and the squalor, I hope by reading my book you will understand why. I I can't tell you sort of how frustrating and how humiliating it was to be praised and, and held up on one hand and then silenced and done away with on the other.
15: One reason why you found Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee doubly dismaying, you put it, is because your reservation, the Leech Lake Reservation in northern Minnesota, was a nowhere place where nothing happened and good ideas went to die.
16: It took a great amount of effort to try and see myself, the place I was from, and my, my people as more than simply a collection of eternal sufferers. You know, American Indians are once great peoples with a great future behind them. That's it. I was in search of a different story, not just different facts, not just a story of hope to stamp on the other side of the coin of despair. I thought that D. Brown, despite his passion on the behalf of Native people, which I appreciate, missed the point. Wounded Knee was a low point. We had withstood constant assaults on our sovereignty, on our cultures, on our religion, on our families. So by 1890, we were very low, but we were not done. And since that point, we've been doing so many amazing things with such energy and intelligence to live fully realized and satisfying lives on our own terms. Toni Morrison once said that if there's a book you want to read, and it doesn't exist, well then you you have to write it. And that's exactly what I've tried to do.
15: The occupation of Alcatraz, that was the year before D. Brown's book came out. Describe what happened there.
16: Yeah, Alcatraz suddenly thrust Indians into the national spotlight. They declared it Indian land, and they camped out there, and they had a bunch of demands they hoped would be met, and they really weren't met.
4: We wish to be fair and honorable in our dealings with the Caucasian inhabitants of this land and hereby offer the following treaty. We will purchase set Alcatraz Island for $24 in glass beads and red cloth, a precedent set by the white man's purchase of a similar island about 300 years ago.
16: I think it was kind of doomed from the start. There was a lot of chaos that occurred on Alcatraz, and that kind of tolerance for dissent, for drama, and even violence came along with subsequent activist movements in the 70s.
11: Just as we got down there, the whole, the whole courtyard was covered with uh, FBI agents with rifles. They all had rifles and shotguns, and, and, they, and they searched me.
16: I don't think it was meant to achieve a direct end, but to raise the consciousness of most Americans to not only our plight, but our continued existence, and also direct people's attention toward the responsibility of the government toward the first people of this country. And it did definitely do that.
15: In 72, you were a baby when Mm -hmm. a few hundred Indians led a caravan to Washington, dubbed the Trail of Broken Treaties.
16: The caravan was the brainchild of both the American Indian movement and tribal leaders from places like Standing Rock. My own personal view is that the takeover of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which (laughs) ensued, was in many ways skewed by the kind of unhealthy self-promotion of people like Russell Means, who was a Lakota activist, who was one of the founders of AIM, and who thought a great deal of himself.
15: Was it really an effort to get a meeting with President Nixon?
16: (laughs) Yes. I mean, they'd hammered out sort of a a bill of rights, if you will, that they were going to present to the government. They wanted the Bureau of Indian Affairs to be (laughs) revamped from top to bottom because it had done a dismal job. It was paternalistic, and it was short-sighted. And It lost billions of dollars of native money that it was holding in trust that were the result of grazing and timber and mineral leases, among other things. The government still hadn't copped to the fact that it was ignoring its basic treaty obligations, and this takeover was supposed to draw attention to it. But then the people who were in the BIA trashed the place and did something like $6 million of damage to the building itself. And the whole occupation ended when these sort of dark agents of government, like Frank Carlucci...
15: One of Nixon's guys,
16: a bagman, even then, agreed to pay them something like $66,000 to get them to leave, which they took. None of that $66,000, or at least not that I can tell, made its way into the rank and file and the very poor Indians who put themselves on the line to join that caravan.
15: And then there was another dramatic act of protest, and this time it was at the symbol of Indian suffering and injustice,
16: That's right. In '73, there was the takeover and the siege of Wounded Knee.
15: Well, I believe that the time has come that we have to commit violence in order to be heard. I don't want to see anybody killed or anything, but time's going to come when uh, violence might have to be committed.
16: There had been a number of very high-profile murders of Native people in in the years leading up to 1973 in and around Pine Ridge and in other places in South Dakota, Custer, South Dakota, to speak of another symbolic place. Mm-hmm. And people were were frustrated with tribal government, the federal government. They felt that there was no justice because these white guys who were murdering Indians were getting charged with things like second-degree manslaughter or misdemeanors at best. It was it was truly,
15: truly awful. And so for 71 days in 1973, Wounded Knee was under siege. We have
17: declared
2: Wounded Knee an independent country. <laughs> any spy from the United States of America is found within our borders to be shot before a firing
15: squad. You say you had very complicated feelings about it.
16: I did. AIM activists showed up at Pine Ridge at the behest of a lot of community members to help them solve this rash of murders of Native people. The tribal government at Pine Ridge was very against this. Dick Wilson, the chairman of Pine Ridge, was interested mostly in staying in power. And he was working closely with the federal and state government to sort of bring in more and more law enforcement. So there's, again, another military buildup everything kind of boiled over and AIM activists took over the Wounded Knee training post and subsequently took over the entire village of Wounded Knee at first holding village residents some of whom were not native hostage and then later the hostages said we were free to go at any time we just didn't want to go cuz then we figured if we did go the government would kill all the Indians so they were actually very sympathetic <laughs> and and, uh,
15: and Wilson was the head of the reservation?
16: He was the tribal chairman.
15: It sounds like you didn't have a huge amount of respect for him either.
16: No, he was a strong-arm guy. Tribal government was one of the few ways in those days an uneducated person could bilk the tribe and the government for a few years before they get voted out, but then they got a nest egg. It's totally cynical. Inside Wounded Knee, all sorts of dark and awful things were happening. Some law enforcement people were shot and some native people were shot and killed. An African American activist by the name of Ray Robinson showed up and disappeared within a week and it later turned out that he was killed by an AIM security detail and buried someplace in the hills and no one knows where. This was a kind of violence that dogged the American Indian movement for years to come, defined it in some ways. Also, on on a local level, nothing really changed at Pine Ridge. There was still violence being done to Native people by white people, and they're getting away with it. There was still violence being done by Dick Wilson's government to other Native people, and no one was doing anything about it. And AIM didn't make it any better. But once again, what they did do was keep the issue of Native life and Native lives in the national consciousness.
15: Because that did have an impact. It did. There was some substantial legislation.
16: Yeah, there was amazing legislation finally passed in the 1970s that improved American Indian education. I remember going to school, this was in the 70s and 80s, but I did not have an American Indian teacher until graduate school. By the time my younger brother and sister, who were eight years younger, went to school, they had Native teachers. They had teachers who were like them. And this meant a great deal to them.
15: And this was due to the Indian Education Act of 1972?
16: A lot to do with that. And in 1978, I believe, Carter signed into law the American Indian Religious Freedom Act. Mm Until 1978, it was illegal for Native American people to practice their religion. We weren't being prosecuted by the government if we practiced our religions in the 1970s. But for Carter to finally grant Native American people religious freedom had an incredible effect. No longer, if you were a traditional native person, were you suspect, were you dismissed out of hand or, or pushed to the, to the side. So yes, a lot of good things happened in the 70s, and many of those good things happened because of bringing our case onto people's television sets.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with Counterspin, discussing the faulty opinion polls the Washington Post depended on to dismiss concerns over the name of the Washington football team. Let's Talk Native connected the dots between racism and misogyny in Native depictions that result in the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Native America Calling spoke with Native museum curators about the importance of being in charge of telling their own stories. Politically Reactive discussed the cultural appropriation of casually using the term spirit animal. Breakdances with Wolves, a show hosted by Native Americans, incidentally, spoke with a Native Hawaiian about the legal cultural appropriation of the word Aloha by the Aloha Poke Company, based in Chicago, but with stores in half a dozen states or so. Don't eat there if you see one. Backstory explained the invention of Hollywood Indian English. And finally, we just heard on the media speaking with David Troyer about the representation of Native peoples presented by the well-meaning author of Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, the representation he's trying to bring to Native people's stories in his book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, which I'm halfway through and heartily recommend that you read, and also how some of the greatest gains for native rights we've seen in this country came when native people managed to represent themselves on Americans television screens. Members this week will hear a bit more on the process of putting together native cultural centers and museums. Plus, I've received some interesting messages in response to the Modern Monetary Theory episode, which I know sounds incredibly dry, but I actually think it's going to be fun because it gives an opportunity to talk not just about the topic at hand, but about rhetoric and argumentation itself. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft, and now we'll hear from you.
17: Hey Jay, it's Nick from California. I took a my Father's Day, birthday uh, hiatus from politics. Uh, unfortunately, I, I missed the impeachment rallies. Your show did change my mind, but I was not in the um, the camp. I, I, I would I would say I wasn't for nor against. I wasn't I wasn't really in any of your three categories. I was sort of. I don't really know if impeachment is the strategic idea. Obviously, I'd like to see him impeached. Obviously, I. As an outsider, believe there's enough evidence that he has he's corrupt, and therefore should have impeachment hearings. But I wasn't. Um, I didn't know if that was the political calculus. Um, and your show did convince me that that was the political calculus. That that is appropriate for two reasons. There were two things that really stood out to me. One, the idea that the House of Representatives needs to focus on other issues. What other issues? Um, the idea, you know, just beating me over the head with the fact that the Senate isn't going to pass anything real that we want anyway. So and the president would veto it which <laughs> if it magically got past the Senate. So the idea that we need to focus on other issues. Well, I do think it's nice. I think it's symbolic for the House to pass these things. That doesn't make any sense. Also, Trump's base is radicalized. Uh, there's 40 percent of the country and I just it is. I mean, it's hard for me to believe this still, but 40 percent of the country has just been brainwashed by Facebook, their silo, Fox News, Breitbart, et cetera, to still somehow support this guy fervently, vehemently. And they're not going – starting articles of impeachment are going to – might be more mad, but they're already – the small, my, the my, sorry, the large minority of Americans that support Trump are are pretty crazy and are going to go out and vote. And we need to balance that out by going out and vote ourselves, and you know just making that clear. It's like, look, no matter what they do, Obama can wear a tan suit. Doesn't matter. Like they'll find something every day to get super angry about, and. They are radicalized and worked up. I saw something the other day saying, but, you know, this guy praising Trump that I saw on Facebook and basically you said, know, "Oh, we have to, you know, hang some Democrats for treason. But, you know, other than that, you know, <laughs> so Trump, you know, uh, he the, didn't say that to be a joke. The people are already crazy. And whether we impeach or not, some of them want to hang us. <laughs> so, yeah, I just... Laying up those issues that way, there's really no reason to me why we wouldn't impeach, especially since the office requires it, given just how many different avenues of corruption Trump has explored. Um, he, that need, there needs to be in hearings where all of this is brought up again in a concise way and, you know, go from there. That can only help us. All right, thank you. It was a great episode. Uh, yes, I went from, I don't know if we should impeach him or not. I don't know if it's both calculus. I don't know if they have enough, but uh, it's tough for me to really know, to being like, yeah, no, it's the right move. And those are the things that swayed me. Sorry if I'm a day late on this and if I over and I rambled. But, uh, yeah, that's that's what changed my mind. And um, it is possible I could hear an argument that could swing me the other way again. Possible. But uh, it's, uh, it's unlikely. Those were pretty good arguments.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, uh, today, I have a very appropriate recommendation for you. I'm going to recommend a show that you go watch, if you can, figure out how to, Uh, but I'm going to tell you about it anyway. So the show is called First Contact. It's produced by a Canadian broadcasting company. So uh, Canadian listeners get on it. Uh, You should go watch it. You have access to it. Everyone else, you don't technically have access to it. We watched it. Amanda and I watched it last night. We didn't Watch it probably in the most legal of ways, but if you are the type of person who uh, uses VPNs and things like that to uh, make your computer think that it's in a different country than it really is, well, then you can watch it too. But for everyone who's not going to do that, uh, i'll I'll tell you about it. So so the show first contact, it's a technically reality show, you know sort of documentary ish. Well, yeah, I mean, documentary show, uh, reality show, but with no no game elements, just uh, real people who have signed up to be on a show uh, where they get to express their ignorance about Native people in Canada, First Nations people in Canada, and then have their preconceived notions challenged. That's the whole point. So they're sort of pre-interviewed. Uh, I think about six white people with varying degrees of ignorant opinions and varying degrees of, uh, you know, of, of fervent belief in their opinions. And then they're all sort of taken on a trip over the course of a month and confronted in a whole variety of ways uh, with these different uh, places and people and scenarios that You know, the point is to see if they change their mind once they're confronted with reality, rather than the sort of biased representations and stereotypes that they've been exposed to, not really knowing any of the the realities, just sort of getting this filtered perspective. It's actually very reminiscent of of one of my favorite, uh, you know, little descriptors, the four-dimensional person. These people are clearly four-dimensional. The point is that they have a bunch of opinions, but they can change when new information is given to them. And so the show ends up being, you know, I'm not, not going to just like tell you all the sort of good, bad, and and, uh, and neutral sorts of uh, scenarios that Native people are experiencing, but I, I'd rather just focus on kind of what the show does to present how minds are changed and also, uh, you know, does a, a, sort of an equally good job of showing how some minds aren't changed. Not everyone is brought along to a, to a new way of thinking. And, and it's reminded me of this concept. I can't remember if I've talked about it on the show, but I have this theory and it, it, it begins with the, the sort of basic concept that everyone sort of instinctually understands that learning something new is easier when it's something sort of close to what you already know. You know, like learning new words in English for English speakers is a lot easier than learning new words in a foreign language because you have no context for the foreign language. So when, you know, when you're learning something new, if you have sort of contextual hooks that you can hang new information on, then it helps the mind process this new information. If you're learning something you have absolutely no context about at all, it's completely different than anything you've ever understood or heard of before, well, it's just a lot harder to grasp that. And I have this theory that that concept also translates to sort of the art of learning itself. And if you are the kind of person who learns new things all the time, then it's not the specifics of what you're learning. It's the idea that new information is being introduced to you regularly. You are regularly having your mind changed, your, your perspectives broadened, your preconceived notions altered. And if you do that a lot, which hopefully you do, because hopefully this show does that for you. It certainly happens to me a lot because I do all this research for this show, and I'm I'm constantly learning new things that make me real. Oh, I had no idea that I even had a backwards opinion on that. I'd never really thought of it, and now I learned a new thing. So now I have a new thought, I, and I'm constantly sort of refining how I think about things, and. I think that, that doing that frequently makes it easier. Every time new information comes along that challenges preconceived notions, it becomes easier and easier every time to have your preconceived notions challenged because you're like, oh, right, oh, like here's just another instance of my preconceived notion being wrong. Now I'll update my notions, and now I can be right again. As far as I know until I'm challenged again. But if you almost never have your preconceived notions changed, then when it happens, rarely, it's like not having a contextual hook to hang that new information on. Like, you just can't process it. And so that's what happens in this show. And it's it's a very predictable breakdown of which people are able to absorb new information and which people aren't. This is probably a concept that exists. I'm sure someone already knows about it. If if you're familiar, write in and, and tell me what I'm missing. I made up terms for it because I've never heard of it and I made it up myself. So I, I, I think of it as new information normalcy. That's what I'm describing about. Hopefully you and I uh, listening to a show like this, we're constantly being given new information and constantly updating how we think about the world and the alternative being Static information normalcy. You know what you know. You've known it your whole life and it's never changed. So why should it change now? So it's, it's a really interesting insight into the breakdown, not just of, as I said, how people come to change their minds when confronted with new information, but how like for, for people who are willing to change their mind, it's like shocking, not to mention incredibly frustrating when People are sort of presented that same information and don't change their minds. So anyway, it, the, the show is good at uh, at displaying both of those. But just a couple of things I, I will mention about sort of the the lives of native people that uh, that the show describes is that it, it does a really good job of showing how having heritage and having culture and a strong attachment to it really makes it possible to have a strong feeling of um, belonging and place. And what often happens is that natives are, are sort of stuck in the middle. They certainly have a heritage, but it's been profoundly disrupted. And then when they live in, you know, Western sort of European culture, when they move to the city, they are, are stuck in between. They're, they have their culture that they're separated from they don't fit in perfectly well with the culture that you know isn't of their heritage and it combines with intergenerational trauma that's part of the uh, major disruption of of their own culture and it makes it very hard to f- you know feel that sense of place to have a connection to heritage and culture which then translates To it being very difficult to have self pride and self love. And so then that, of course, leads to the epidemics that we actually hear about self harm, drug, alcohol abuse, high suicide rates, and all of that. So like, if you, if you understand the process, if you understand where those things come from, it it becomes very clear, very easy to understand why we end up with the outcomes we have. And, And I'll just mention, you know, one of our favorite scenes in the show i mean it's it's heart-wrenching and like it brings tears to the eyes uh there's a scene where they're going around calgary and you know picking up native people who are you know in the middle of the night who are having a hard time they're intoxicated they're being violent you know something like that and instead of just calling the police and having the police go pick them up there's this this harm reduction team that goes out picks them up takes them to a safe place, treats them like humans, all of that. And so there's this scene where a small white mother of two is in the van and they're about to go pick up a large, you know, like a six foot tall uh, native guy who has a reputation of being violent. And so she's clearly nervous and she handles her nervousness when the guy steps into the van by approaching him immediately, reaching out, shaking his hand, welcoming him in, and then they have this amazing conversation about the struggles he's going through. You know, he, he describes, you know, basically that, that sense of disconnection. He describes it as sort of losing himself and his body being separated from his spirit and his spirit sort of wanders and his body is left, you know, w- without uh, that connection to spirit. And she asks, you know, well what what can you do to bring that connection back together? And he says that he has to say his name and pray. And it, it's 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 just such a beautiful way of describing the struggles that so many people are going through when they come from a culture that's been profoundly disrupted and they have to fight through either hardships on the reservation or very different, but maybe equally harrowing hardships in a modern city where they don't really fit in. And so to, to bring these, these two concepts together, the, the, the process of learning new things and, and the act, you know, understanding the actual process by which people have come to be in the situations they're in, to to be homeless, to be addicted to, you know, all of those sorts of things. As per usual, I I thought of an analogy. that sort of uh, describes it well. So like taking it completely out of the realm of of race and culture and heritage and all that, let's just say there's a person limping. And for whatever reason, someone is really annoyed by that. Like, (laughs) like he's limping. Like why, why, why don't you just walk normally? Everyone else is walking normally, some of us are even running. Why don't you get your act together and stop limping? You're only making things harder for yourself. It takes longer to get where you're going. It's ridiculous. And then someone comes along and is like, oh, hey, dude, um, that person was hit by a car. That's why they're limping. And when someone says that, you can have one of two responses, maybe more than two, but at least one of two. You could say, oh, geez, now I understand. Or you could say, well, I mean, he chose to not look where he was going when he was crossing the street, obviously. That's why he got hit by a car. So first he just chose to get hit by a car, and now he's continuing to cho- choose to limp. That is exactly what happened in this show. <laughs> People actually make the choice to not hear new information, not absorb it, because it is so difficult for them to process new information and have their worldview changed. It's, it's really interesting. And and like in that analogy, you could go on and say like, uh, no, actually he wasn't crossing the street. He was like like sitting in his living room and the car drove in through the front of his house. And that person would still think like, well, I mean, it's a, it's a dangerous road. Why is he living in such a dangerous neighborhood where cars are just driving into the fronts of houses all the time? Like, choose a better place to live, buddy. Then you won't end up limping. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it was amazing the length that people would go to not hear new information. So anyway, uh, again, the name of the show is First Contact. It's available, uh, legally to everyone in Canada. It's from the, uh, APTN network i'm sure canadians know what that channel is Uh, so aptn.ca first contact is where it's all listed if you have a vpn you can pretend to be in canada and watch it as well i highly recommend you watch it we definitely got a lot out of it Uh, As always, if you'd like to comment on this or anything else, we'd love to hear it. The number to dial, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the